you'll take your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts. We'll begin chapter 9 today. We are going to read uh, chapter 9 uh, in its entirety. We, and I'm sorry, no, till 31, verse 31. 1 through 31, thought that was all of it, but it's not. Uh, now the New King James Version, as, our, as is my custom, Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 31. God's Word declares, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone round him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? The Lord said to him, Arise, and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. And the man who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were open, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a certain disciple of Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias? And he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine, to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him said, Brother Saul... The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately he preached to the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who call on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a large basket. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he declared to him, to them, how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out, and he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Well, this morning we move forward into chapter 9 of the book of Acts, and uh, again, a great um, event that we want to consider, the uh, conversion of Saul of Tarsus. We have seen his effect on the church already, that even before coming to Christ and being a positive agent for the gospel, 
has already uh, had a similar effect. And, and even as an opponent of the gospel, he already has assisted the church in fulfilling the Great Commission because they were forced out of Jerusalem. They were forced out of Judea because of his work. As he hunted them down door to door, it says that the church scattered, and everywhere they went, they preached the gospel. And so we find that Saul has already been an agent. He has already been an instrument used by God to prod the church, if you will, into obedience of the great commission of Acts 1.8, that they are going to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the other most parts of the world. And so we find now, almost uh, expectantly, because of his introduction at the uh, death of, of uh, the martyrdom of Stephen, uh, we find some further information about Saul, that he was a determined man, young man at this point, and uh, was passionate about his position. Uh, we saw him, of course, in reference to Stephen, in connection with the Hellenist uh, synagogue in Jerusalem, uh, that he was there among the synagogue of the freedmen, uh, and that would have been appropriate for Saul. He was very likely, almost positively, a member of that very synagogue. Him being a Roman citizen, which means he was a free man, freedman. Um, he was born that way, while many within the synagogue were freed, either by a purchase price or being set free by uh, some act of uh, service to the Roman Empire, uh, being made a citizen. And so he has, he has a lot of connections into this group, and we're going to find him going right back to them with the gospel by the end of the account here. But we found him there, that he was taking a leadership in that synagogue. Um, he was under the training of Gamaliel. We've already been introduced to him as well. Uh, and his communication there uh, with regard to the church and how the leadership of Israel should be addressing that. Uh, and standing back and just saying, let's just wait and see if the Lord is in this or not. Otherwise, we're fighting against God. Well, his number one student here is out, and he is very passionately pursuing the believers. And we find in chapter 9, him already breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Um, and it wasn't sufficient to do so in Jerusalem. Uh, it had largely been emptied out. The Bible says about the only ones that really stayed behind of the, particular of the leadership of uh, the church were the apostles, the twelve. And so we find that uh, he wants to now expand his search. Since they have run off to their lands, he wants to pursue them, and he asks for permission to do so. Uh, and it was granted to him, is the indication here. So we find this young man wanting to uh, purify his people. And we need to recognize that that fundamentally is the heart of what he is wanting to do. And certainly uh, the Bible does not portray him in a very positive light prior to salvation. And Paul himself does not view himself in a positive way. And yet we find that within him there is this desire to... Uh, cleanse, if you will, his faith, to cleanse uh, what he saw as an aberration of uh, Jewishness and the Jewish faith uh, of uh, this heresy of a man who claims to be God. The problem is, of course, that he has not come to grips with the fact that the one who claimed to be God, truly was. And he's about to do so this morning. And so today we're going to look into this study with a perspective that we encounter many Saul's. We're passionate about error and need to be confronted with the truth once again and then over again. Before we do so, let's go Lord in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you again for your word before us and we pray that we might be instructed by it, might be careful in its handling and for that we depend upon your Holy Spirit this hour. Lord, we 
pray that we might see in the examples of your saints the principles that you would desire for us to emulate. We also pray that you would guard us from mistakes that sometimes were made and the error and the sins. Help us to avoid them, that we might live righteously and godly in this present age. We pray this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Saul was no slouch. He knew his stuff. He was well-trained, and he uh, recognizes that and actually shares that in some of his letters when he gives his testimony to those who claim to be uh, great students of the Word and, and, and wise in the ways of God, uh, and yet we're declaring things in opposition to Christ. And Paul addresses them uh, on several occasions throughout the epistles uh, when dealing mostly with Judaizers, but others as well. And he presents himself uh, and his credentials, if you will, in those settings. Uh, here we are simply introduced to this young man, uh, and we see his great passion, we see his great commitment, his dedication to this task that he has put upon himself, really, having been introduced to it, really, uh, by means of Stephen. And uh, this is where he really uh, laid hold of that. He saw the effect and, the, and, and probably was the, the main opposition within the synagogue of the freemen. And we find that he is going to lead them right to the high priest. He now has their permission and he is going to head not into the countryside of Judea. He's not going to certainly head into Samaria because he really doesn't care about the Samaritans. Remember, he's of the ilk that avoids Samaria by walking around it. They would rather cross the Jordan River, head north, and then cross back to avoid Samaria. Uh, he's of one of those kinds of guys. And so Samaria wasn't a big concern to him. And so you can go to the Samaritans all you want, and uh, we have that account of, of Philip and, and uh, all that was transpiring there. That wasn't fundamentally Saul's concern. Uh, there really is not any record of a lot of synagogues in Samaria because most Jews avoided it. And the Jews that were there were, were um, largely non-practicing or of the mixed heritage of the Samaritans uh, who had their own kind of synagogues. And so word comes to him, of the next place, the next uh, influence, realm of influence the church began to have. And, and it's odd to us because we don't have a lot of information about what happened in Damascus. Uh, we have some extra biblical information uh, that Damascus was penetrated with the gospel very uh, extensively. Uh, in fact, by, by 67, 68 AD, uh, we have a very large church there. Uh, to the point that that uh, we have record of nearly 10,000 losing their life in uh, Colosseum there. And so we have some indication there was some very active Christian community there, uh, as well as the synagogues in Damascus. But Damascus, as you know, is in Syria. Uh, it is really outside of the purview of what we would call Israel, um, but there was a contingency of Jews up there. There were multiple synagogues there. Um, it was a large city. And Saul saw the displacement of the Christians heading that way. And uh, certainly uh, news probably of what's going on in Samaria may have come to his ears. But that, like I said, was would not have concerned him. But when it begins to influence synagogues a little farther north, uh, into Damascus, he says it's time to uh, put a stop to it there, and maybe we can contain this uh, disease on our faith, which is what he would look upon it as, uh, and uh, bring it under wraps before it penetrates any farther than the Roman Empire. And so he asks of it, and is granted that. And if he finds any of any people, he doesn't care if they're men or women, he's going to bring them to Jerusalem to face trial, and the expectation is that they will have the same end as Stephen. And so he's on his way. The letters are in hand. Uh, news of his uh, uh, mission have gone ahead of him. We know that because when he arrives in Damascus as a blind man, even the Christians know what's going on. They are well familiar that this is the guy that was sent here 
Uh, it comes with authority to arrest Jews and to haul us back to Jerusalem, or haul us to Jerusalem if they hadn't been there prior, um, to face execution, essentially. And so the word goes out ahead of him, and he's traveling certainly with a fairly large entourage. Um, and again, he would have had to cross the Jordan River, headed up north um, along the, the eastern shore of the Jordan, uh, heading around the Sea of Galilee, and going up and, and heading slightly uh, northeast towards Damascus. He's nearly there. His journey is almost complete. He is ready to invoke the authority that he has to begin persecuting the church of Damascus. And verse 3, of course, is our exciting verse. Suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Literally that it encompassed him. That a light from heaven shone around him, not that it was over there and over there, but it encompassed him that he was engulfed in it. That this light from heaven engulfed him and, uh, and it drove him with its penetrating glory, drove him to close his eyes and bend down. It is that kind of intense glory that, that we're really unfamiliar with. That uh, intensity of not just brilliance in terms of it's just so bright I have to squint, um, but rather the, the penetrating glory of God from heaven that, that drives all men, even righteous men, to their knees. It makes men like Isaiah say, woe is me, I am undone. A man who is a servant of God stands before that. It drives priests right out of the tabernacle, and right out of the temple. They cannot endure it. And here, this glory, this light, brilliance from heaven encompasses him, shines around him, that is, that it envelops him. And he falls to the ground, it says in verse 4, and then he heard a voice saying to him, he isn't going to ever see the person who's speaking to him because his eyes are clenched shut. We find that he's not going to open his eyes again until the conversation's over. He has fallen down his knees, his eyes are clenched closed, and he is being penetrated by the sheer brilliance of heaven. And the voice comes out knowing his name. And that's something we're going to find about God uh, the personal nature by which he knows us. There is no hiding from him. Um, he's going to come to Saul and he's going to say, Saul, Saul, I know you. I know what's going on. I know that even while you're passionately pursuing Christians and persecuting them, uh, that you... Uh, are dealing with some things in your heart. I'm here to uh, put a finger on those things a little bit and identify them and 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 pursue you. He's going to later on come to another believer and call him by his name, his personal name, Ananias. And again, um, that knowledge of who we are whether we are unbelievers or believers, God knows. We who are in a relationship with God through the blood of Jesus Christ, we say, well, of course he knows us, but he also knows everyone. All hearts, all minds are laid open to him. They are common knowledge in his sight. And so they are known to him. And these that are uh, the believers fear, these that the believers wonder if God knows what they're up to. Does God recognize what he's doing to us? Um, and the answer is yes. Nothing is hidden from his sight. No one is hidden from his sight. No, no compartment of your life is hidden from his sight. 
He knows. And he comes to Saul. And he says, why are you doing this? Why are you persecuting me? And it makes it very personal. This is something between you and me. It's not just that you're going after these men and women who claim my name. You're going after me. This is a personal issue between you and I. You are actively persecuting not my people. You are persecuting me. For we have come into such sweet communion with Christ that Christ identifies us as his very own. And this is so important. Uh, We're going to have a wedding come up Saturday. And one of the issues that we always want to present is the model that when two individuals come together as husband and wife, God says you're one flesh. There's a oneness there. And that when Christ describes us as his bride, he has come into a union with us. That he is one with us. And what happens to his church happens to him. And so he says, you're persecuting me. For I have conjoined with these. This is my bride. This is the one that I call fellow inheritors, joint heirs. These are the the ones that that will I'll spend eternity. We are going to co-reign in the kingdom of God. Uh, these this is my beloved. Why are you persecuting me? Of course, Saul um, has to get tuned in a little bit. All right, he's a, obviously he's overwhelmed. Um, who are you, Lord? And that word, Lord, is not a designation. He has already recognized him as as God, but rather um, as certainly one with greater authority, power uh, over him. And so he says, "Who are you, Lord?" Obviously, he doesn't know that this is Christ speaking to him. Uh, From his expectation, uh, from a Jewish perspective, knowing the Old Testament, um, he may be considering this as a heavenly event with someone from heaven, whether it be Jehovah, uh, whether it be whatever manifestation that he is familiar with from the Old Testament era, uh, the angel of the Lord, whoever this is. Who are you, Lord? That's his focus. Um, probably the last thing he's expecting to hear is, this is Jesus. <laughs> oh, maybe Elijah. Okay, maybe one of the, a character like that, that the Jews held in high esteem and expected his return. Who are you, Lord? Fascinating thing for a student of <laughs> the scriptures to say. What a variation from the next guy that's going to hear from God. The next man, when he hears his name called out, says, Ananias. Verse 10. He said, here I am, Lord. What a distinction. The one says, who are you, Lord? The other one says, here I am, Lord. And fundamentally, this is the difference between a child of God and one who is lost. The lost can only say, who are you? Well, I don't even know, I don't even, we can't even start with what you want because I don't even know who you are. And we often go to unbelievers trying to communicate what God wants instead of communicating who God is. And we need to begin there by answering that question, who are you, Lord? We, in our experience, would tend to associate more with Ananias at this point and say, well, I know who the Lord is. The only question now is, is here I am. I'm ready to do your bidding. Tell me what you want me to do. But the fact remains that most of those that you are encountering have no genuine understanding of who Jesus is. They have some... Uh, they know him, many know him as a curse word. Um, they know that we celebrate a birth of Jesus once a year and a resurrection once a year. Um, they know there's some religious aspect around him. But frankly, one of the great things that Satan has implemented over the ages of the church um, is he has muddied and confused and fogged over who Christ is through false teachers, through 
media, through uh, the hiding of God's word and making it unavailable to men, uh, he has sought to bring a cloud of confusion over this question, who is Jesus? Remember when I was first coming into the pastorate and uh, up at Rio Rancho, and I remember it very well because I was preaching through the Gospel of John, and and um, that week in Time Magazine was a big article, front page, Time Magazine, who is Jesus? And here was their big revelation, he was a Jew. Wow. Time Magazine, I put that on the cover. That was a big news. Jesus was a Jew. I kind of knew that. But no one at Time Magazine knew that, apparently, because they thought it was big news. They needed to share it with the whole world. Did you know that Jesus was a Jew? Surprise. Open your Bible. It's been around, that knowledge has been around for a really long time. But the world doesn't fundamentally know who Jesus is. And ask the same question. Who are you, Lord? So God has gotten his attention, but Saul, again, I'm convinced, is not prepared for the answer. And Christ comes forward. says, I am Jesus. And you are persecuting me because you're persecuting my people. You are persecuting. It is hard, or is it hard, isn't it hard for you to kick against the pricks? It's hard for you. You, you have, we talked about this prior in other Sundays. It's hard for you. I have been working on you. You have heard the gospel. So you have some, had some powerful presentations going back to Steve and, and other exposures that, that Saul has had. And it has been working in his life and he is opposing them. They have tried to goad him to Christ. Christ has, has, has poked him multiple times and, and we're unfamiliar with goads and prods and what they're really uh, about. And uh, um, if if people saw us do this today, we'd probably get arrested for animal abuse or something. Um, you'd simply be as a sharp pointy stick. And if your ox or your or donkey or mule or whatever you didn't go the right way or just wasn't motivated to get going, you would just poke them with a sharp stick. Wow! And get them going. And once they're moving, now you can direct them. It's really hard to steer a stationary thing. Did you know that? Really hard. And that's something I, I I've taught four kids to drive now. Um, that's why my beard is gray. Um, it started with Julie, and it started turning, and ever since then, it's just gone. And one of the first things I try to communicate to them is the faster you go, the more careful you have to be because it's really easy to get off track. And so you have to be control your steering wheel. Um, but if you're dead stop, you're not going to... You're turning the wheels as hard as you can. You're not, really, it's, you're not doing much. But once you're going, now steering becomes very easy, and, and, and then... You get faster and faster, and then you realize that if I miss steer at 90 miles an hour, that could be devastating. It can have that much of an effect that quickly. And so Christ here is goading him, and so we want to steer this ox cart, and to do so, we got to get it moving so we can then steer it. And so the prod is there, just a sharp pointy stick, jab, jab. You start going the wrong direction, jab, and they respond to that pain. They want to avoid the pain, and so they are startled and go forward, and Christ said, I've been jabbing you. I want you to understand that being a prod for God, (laughs) being a goad, um, is not going to make you friends. I don't know of anybody who likes being jabbed. Any of you? It's not our favorite pastime. 
I just can't wait for somebody to come along and poke me with a sharp stick. No. And spiritually, though, that's what we're called to do. That's what Stephen did. That's what Peter did. In their messages, they jab people. And the way we know that is because at the end of their message, and sometimes before the end of the message, really, there are already people who are already responding before the message is really even over. Um, it says that they were cut to the heart. They were pricked in their heart that, that they were jabbed. Ooh, that hurts. What do I have to do? You see, when you poke that animal, that ox, it says, what do I have to do? i got to get away from this poke. It hurts, and they start moving, not realizing they're attached to the thing that actually poked them. And it's going with them as they move, but they don't know that. The testimony of Stephen had poked him, and he's moving, but he's moving without the knowledge that the one who has prodded him is still close by. And as he has encountered the opposition, I'm I'm sorry, as he encountered those that he is opposing, is their opposition, I find no evidence that they opposed him. As he's arrested them and and had them murdered, um, he has heard the testimony, he has seen the countenance, he has seen the effect, he has seen the commitment. And so when Christ says, you've been kicking against the goads, that a goad... You either go forward or you try to resist it. And resist means you're going to kick back. And what does that mean? That means that you're going to get not just jabbed, you're going to be stabbed. You kick against a goad, it's going to penetrate and it's going to hurt. It's And so God is there providing the goads, but then to move and to direct in your life to bring you to the place of godly sorrow that leads to repentance, and instead of responding to that, you're going to, in rebellion, kick against it. Now you're going to have penetration. You're going to have some wounds. And Christ confronts Saul with, why are you kicking? And you should be moving. You should be Instead of resisting it, you should be submitting to the truth that you're hearing. And you're hearing it from some of my choice servants who are being led by the Spirit of God to communicate to you the truth with all of its power and grandeur. Instead of responding as you should, you are seeking to rebel against it by kicking back. How do I know that Saul wasn't expecting to hear I'm Jesus from the heavenly light is how he's described in verse 6. He was astonished. This is surprise to the extreme. He was astonished. This, This was not what he expected. This is not a name he thought would come up in this kind of a setting, um, in this kind of a conversation. And so now he is confronted with Jesus. And the likelihood of Saul wasn't hiding in a hole in the wall uh, during the events of the crucifixion and the events of, of the Passion Week. He was certainly around um, in, this, in that setting. And so we find him confronted now with a resurrected Jesus who is alive and filled with the glory of heaven. And there can be no longer any confusion that Jesus is, in fact, exactly who he said he was. And so this is astonishing to Saul. Now, we're not talking about someone who is ignorant of the prophets. This man knew the prophets. He knew the law. He knew the stuff that you learned in Sunday school about the branch. He knew that information. He knew what to look for in the Messiah. And he should have easily identified Christ. And yet, this is one who is astonished that Jesus really is that one. And so we need to recognize that when we go out with the gospel message to people, we introduce them to Christ, that there is going to be a level of of surprise and of disbelief, if you will, 
That's incredible. That has no credibility. I, I just don't know that I can believe that. And I'm still finding that. In fact, maybe I'm finding it more in these days than in my young days in the ministry. People even are more astonished. you really believe that? I cannot tell you how many times I have been confronted in the last couple of years with, oh, you believe that fairy tale. It, that It's just, they're okay with just saying everything in the Bible is just a big fairy tale. And you confront them with all the evidence. In fact, even this Wednesday night, I made us, we were talking about what it means to believe. And there's a difference with the youth, a difference between accepting the facts and trusting and being, and dependence upon them. That there is distance between those two. That you need to move from this kind of belief into this belief. This is really salvific belief. And even in the setting of Word of Life youth group, there's that challenge. Jesus is for real? You really think Jesus was for real? He's like Santa Claus. And having to take a step back and say, you want me to prove that Jesus really lived and died and rose again. Our world isn't ready, doesn't want to acknowledge, I shouldn't say isn't ready, they don't want to acknowledge that Jesus is who he said he was. Some of them are ignorant, but even some who have heard this message and repeatedly heard it are still astonished that you that it's real? This is all real stuff? Jesus really is coming back? Jesus really is God? Jesus really did rise from the dead and conquer sin and death for all men? Really? You believe that with all my heart? I can mentally agree with the facts and we can prove those. Those historical, it's one of the most, most provable historical events of our world is that Jesus came and did what he did. But that's not going to save you. The astonishment and the acknowledgement that I am now talking to you, Saul is not a believer at this point. He's certainly on the road. (laughs) Not just the road to Damascus, but he's on the road to faith. He's there. He's been confronted with the gospel multiple times. He's resisted it every single time. I mean, I don't know how much more strongly someone can resist the gospel than to kill you. Right? That's about as strong a resistance as I know of. I'm trying to tell you the gospel. I hate you. Killing you. That's what he did to Stephen. That's about as strong as it gets. And you and I, when confronted with somebody like that, it says, oh God, just send him to hell now. Right? Come on. Honest. Let's just clarify that. Christian guy goes to a Muslim nation, shares Christ. They respond by killing him. What's our expectation? We want God to judge them. And if God won't do it, maybe our country will. Instead of recognizing that that's one prod, let's send another one. That's one goad, let's send another one. Let them kick. Let them kick all they want. Until they're astonished by the truth. And the testimony of Muslims who have come to Christ um, is phenomenal. It is is wonderful to listen to and to see and to hear how astonished they were at their own conclusion that Christ really is God, really is the Messiah, really is the one they need to trust in. Because Not because Christians fought back, but because they loved back. 
to the opposition. So he was astonished. He was trembling, which means he was full of fear. Um, and this is the other condition that we need to recognize that are in lost men. They are full of fear. And they hide it, They, but they ultimately are full of fear. Um, they want to avoid that. Uh, they don't like being prodded, and so they're going to try to avoid you if you're one of those prods that God uses in their life. Um, and they're full of fear. They're, they're, they, when they come to a knowledge that Jesus is really God, uh, there's that astonishment, certainly, but there's also this trembling, this fearfulness. And we need to see that. We need to see that in people. That what comes off as anger, what comes off as rage, what comes off as opposition... Um, sometimes is really just the manifestation of a deep-seated fear. That's there. It's real in their life. They may not even acknowledge it for themselves. And here Saul is trembling before the Lord, recognizing, I have in fact been opposing you, and, and I am shocked. I stand here talking to a dead man. Talking to a man that I say isn't who he says he is. And now I'm confronted with the fact that he is the very man he says he was and is. There is a sense of this trembling astonishment. And then comes in verse 6 this statement. Lord, what do you want me to do? Now that I know who you are and I am confronted with the facts of who you are. My response is going to be, what do you want me to do? And we're like, praise the Lord. We're finally getting to the right question. Now we're getting into the realm and God's going to just tell him how to be saved right here. And he's going to throw down from heaven that sinner's prayer card, right? The little track with the sinner's prayer. That's what God's making an airplane and fly down to him, right? No. No. You and I would have because we want to jump at that if somebody says that. God doesn't. You know what he says? Ah, just keep going to Damascus. I'll send somebody to talk to you. <gasps> what if he died on the way? What if? God says, listen, um, you go. Go in the city where you plan to go and Someone will tell you what to do. And I want to just share with you that in God's economy, the way to hear the gospel is from God's people. And that is God's plan. There is no plan B. Of the church age, this is how it works. And everyone talks about Saul getting saved on the road to Damascus, and I always cringe when they say that. He didn't. He was prepared to receive Christ on the way to Damascus. He was confronted with Christ on the way to Damascus, but he entered Damascus not knowing what to do about all this. Christ did not answer the question fully. He just says, go and someone will tell you what to do. You just go and we'll find out. Because the commission of sharing the gospel is placed squarely on the shoulders of God's people. Saul confronted with a man named Ananias, and Ananias is the one who is going to declare Jesus Christ to him, lay hands on him, to provide sight to him, and he's going to receive Christ and be baptized, and, and all that, they're going to receive the Holy Spirit before he's baptized on this occasion. And we're going to see all of that occur um, in Damascus, not on the road to Damascus. The way to Damascus was God confronting Saul, and Saul now is led by God 
to just go and wait for someone to tell you the truth. What a humbling thing. It's interesting that even in Saul, in Paul's testimony, when he's before the, the group there of Herod and Festus, Felix, all of those, that within the testimony, he includes the contact with Ananias. He includes that as part of his testimony. How did I come to Christ? And he describes what happens on the road to Damascus. But then he says, and then God sent me Ananias. And, and, I, and that's when it came to fruition in my life. I find a lot of people waiting for this bright light experience on the road to Damascus. And, and I got to tell you what a bright light experience is when God slaps you upside the head and says, don't you know me? It is not your salvation event. It was not Saul's salvation experience. It was the conviction. It was the, it was the confrontation. But ultimately, God, Jesus Christ, does not communicate the gospel to Saul. Saul's heard it, hasn't he? I think he's heard it before. He says, no, no, no. You're not getting some privileged... There's no privileged class in Christianity. You're going to come to Christ the way everyone has to come to Christ, and that is by trusting the message of one of my servants. So if you're waiting for God to save your friends you're praying for without you being engaged in that process, um, you don't know the Scriptures very well. There is a plan for God. And I love reading some of the testimonies uh, coming out of the Middle East and how often they are confronted with uh, wanting to know the truth and rehearsing their testimony that they had a vision. I've shared this before of Jesus and their vision. And Jesus says, go talk to so-and-so. They'll tell you the truth. And I give great value to that testimony. Whether in a dream or vision or whatever that they, they're seeking after and they go to one and they hear the gospel there. And this is essentially what Jesus does with Saul. He says, you need to go and you just wait. I'll send you somebody. You just wait. Three days, Saul waited. Three days without being able to see. Three days he did not eat. Three days he did not drink. Three days he was in prayer. Three days he wanted to know. Anxious to wait upon the Lord. We are often so anxious to bring people to Christ we're not willing to wait three minutes hardly before we give them the sinner's prayer and have them bow and pray to get that notch on our spiritual belt. God has a different strategy. He says, I want you to have the weight of this for a little while. Feel the weight. That you are in a condition of being the enemy of God. Feel the weight. I love how the old-time pastors did church, especially when it came to decision-making. One of my favorites was Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who never gave an invitational. Never. He would simply tell them, if this message is significant and you need to make a decision for Christ, here's my office hours this week. Come visit me. Does that work? Sure it does. That's a pattern established by Jesus. Let's see if you're serious. Let's see if this is something that you need to take care of three days from now. Let's see if this is something you're going to pursue, that you're going to go out of your way to make happen, that you're going to set as a priority of your life. Right now it's convenient and you're in a church setting. Let's see about when it's inconvenient for you. 
let's see what you, when you have to go through some of this to access this information, let's just see how serious you really are. Our modern age of altar calls was really introduced fairly recently, but most of those men just did not do it. Jonathan Edwards and the Great Awakening, people ran out of his sermon. He never had an altar call. He had a backdoor track. I mean, it was just people running out of the sermon screaming. Why? Because they felt the weight that they were the enemies of God. And the preachers were more than happy to let that settle on them. Let that weight come full force on your head that you are and have been and continue to be the enemy of God. And we're so afraid to just offend anybody that we never even get them to that point of sensing that they are the enemy of God, let alone letting them burdened by it for any season of time. Godly sorrow, I am convinced, is not instantaneously felt and it doesn't instantaneously bring the results of repentance. It is something that needs to be weighted on us. And here, for three days, Saul is weighted with the information that the one that he has opposed, the one that he has spoken against, the one that he has hunted is the Son of God and is in heaven and alive today and died for him. I am God's enemy. And God is okay with Saul being weighted like that. I'm pretty sure that, in fact, I know because it's happened, if I went three days without eating and drinking at my house, they would all go crazy. We're really worried about you. Because it's happened before. Are you okay? What's bothering you? Oh. Because something weighs on the heart does not mean we need to run to get entertained to make that feeling go away. But that's our American response, right? Of comfort. The creaturely comforts are good. And, and, and anything that makes me feel bad is wrong. Oh no. Christ wants Saul to feel the weight of his sin, his error for some length of days. And so Saul is diligent. He is in prayer. He's on his knees. He's not, he's fasting. He is, it is, it is the thing that needs to be addressed in his life and it's going to supplant everything else. It's going to supplant his work schedule. It's going to supplant all of his ambitions. It's going to supplant um, all of his physical needs. Everything else is now uh, irrelevant. This needs attention. And so Saul is going to envelop himself in prayer and, and waiting on the Lord and 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 you can just imagine what's going through his mind as he rehearses this speech that he heard from the Lord. The men with him heard it as well. They heard the voice, it says, but they didn't see anyone. They weren't blinded because they weren't enveloped in it like Saul was. And here he is uh, with his senses gone and 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 laid out before the Lord in his total weakness. I am totally insufficient. And God sends an Ananias. We're going to look at Ananias a little bit more next week. But I want to share with you, this is the condition that we need to see men come to before they're ready to receive Christ. And we can't shirk that. We can't diminish it the way that the church largely has in these days, that we draw people to Christ with a carrot of eternal life or of 
whatever uh, and focus only on those without ever letting the weight of the fact that they are the enemies of God sit on them. Just let it sit on them. If it's genuine, it won't go away. It will only increase. It will multiply. It will intensify. And if they really want to get rid of that, if that godly sorrow really has brought forth repentance, they will not rest until it's resolved. But you see, we so earnestly want people to come to know Christ, we short-circuit the process because we want them to come to Christ right now. And maybe for the first time in their entire life, the weight of God's holiness and their opposition and their and of being the enemy of God is felt and we want to quickly dispel it just that fast. Okay, you feel sorry? Yeah, okay. Pray this prayer so it's going away. No! Hammer it on them! <laughs> Till they are on their knees in blindness and can't eat can't drink because it is the foremost thing in their life is to deal with the fact that I have been and maybe still am the enemy of God. What does that mean? Oh, that we would see within the methodology of Christ dealing with Saul, see, first of all, a level of compassion to recognize that even the greatest enemies of Christianity today can be their greatest advocates tomorrow, or at least three or four days from now. And recognize that what keeps us from sharing Christ, they really are afraid much as they try to mask it with violence and, and opposition and, and vicious words, as much as they try to mask it, they really are afraid. And when they're confronted with truth, and what keeps us from doing that isn't really... Um, well, let's just be honest. It's because we love ourselves too much. We don't want to be a prod for God. We want to... Just be the, the net man. Right? We just want to be the person that puts the net out over the boat and scoops up the fish. We don't want to be a Stephen. We don't want to be one of the prods. That people don't like us. That jar them in their conscience with the truth that confront them and then offer them no solution for a period of time. I love Christ's statement to the disciples who says, you know, rich man can enter the kingdom of God and that pretty much leaves out every American. God says it's impossible for any American to get saved. Jesus said that. And the disciples recognized what he said. It's impossible. Boy, if the rich people who have access and have all this resources, if they can't get saved, who can? And Jesus kind of says, no one. Because salvation isn't humanly possible. It's only divinely possible. This is a message that people need to be confronted with, jolted with, poked with. Yes, they're going to kick. Sometimes they'll move in the right direction with just one or two prods, but those stubborn, ornery ones that become preachers and things like that, they need to be jolted. They're going to kick back. They're going to rebel. They're going to be vicious about it. And, And in their heart, they aren't what you think. They're genuinely terrified. 
of the truth. And yet we are called to confront them with it over and over again. So when the Bible calls for you to pray for your enemy, to do good to those that despitefully use you, it is with this ambition that they may be the very ones that God has a great plan for. We're going to see that more next week. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your great love for us. And we thank you for your approach to Saul. Lord, we pray that we might learn from it. And that we might be willing to participate in your plan in men's lives, even if our role is more like Stephen's than Ananias's. Lord, help us to be willing to take the risks involved of being your prod, your goad, your sharp pointy stick to jab people in their conscience, in their heart, in their lives. Not with meanness, but with genuine love that we might give them the truth, the truth that can make them free, free from sin and its tyranny. Lord, give us a heart, a heart that you had for a man who was your avowed enemy. Give us that same heart, Lord, for our enemies. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.